This is an ABC podcast. The ABC broadcasts across Australia through radio and TV and its online services. But the most popular service the ABC provides, the service that has pulled the biggest audiences by far, is something that most Australians almost never use and are probably unaware that it exists at all. Radio Australia has been sending Australian voices out into the world from high-powered transmitters since 1939. It was established at the outbreak of World War II when the Menzies government was stung by propaganda broadcasts from Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union that were saying all kinds of nasty things about Australia to the region. After the war, Radio Australia kept broadcasting and despite its threadbare funding, it became massively popular throughout the world and was widely admired as a source of reliable and independent news. Radio Australia in the 60s began broadcasting in Vietnamese, in Bahasa, in Japanese, Thai and Mandarin, and listeners regularly rated it as more interesting and informative and entertaining than the BBC World Service and The Voice of America. In 1999, when all hell was breaking loose, in East Timor, a senior US military officer said, I listen to Radio Australia because it's an hour ahead of the CIA and more accurate. Phil Kafkaloudis is here today. Phil is a former ABC broadcaster and he's written the story of Radio Australia, how it found its massive audience and how Australian governments have regularly tried to throw it in the bin, only to have people like the head of the US Treasury, the King of Cambodia, the head of MI5 and the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, as well as hundreds of thousands of listeners who have come roaring to its defence. Phil Kafkaludi's book is called Australia Calling, the ABC Radio Australia Story. Hi, Phil. G'day, Richard. How are you? Well, sir, where did you start with the ABC as a broadcaster? Well, it was in 1988. I'd been working in commercial radio and I'd heard there was a job going in news. So I went to an interview and I remember I didn't think I got the job because I was pretty upfront about where I thought ABC News was. They asked me, which stations do you listen to to get the big stories? And I said, oh, the commercial ones, of course. And they said, not the ABC? And I said, no, because you never get the story first. And they were so <laughs> aghast at this. I went, well, I blame my chance, but I've got to be honest. And so it surprised me the next day they called me and said, you got the job. And I was really good. They said, yeah, we want to increase our speed of getting stories and so that sort of attitude we like. One thing, though, you've got to um, go back to your original Greek name because I was going by the name of Phil Caff then and they said go back to Kafkaludis because we, quote, need more wogs in the place. So in that ca- that idea... Said to you? <laughs> that was said to me. Right. It was very funny at the time. And so, uh, so I did mm. and it's been a good thing. I think. And how were you lured then into Radio Australia after various stints in uh, ABC Broadcasting? One morning I was working as the Melbourne Bureau of News Radio and the head of Radio Australia at the time was Jean-Gabriel Mongui, an incredibly charming Frenchman who was the head of Radio Australia. And he said to me one day, he said, Phil you need to think about your future. And I thought I was getting fired. I thought, what do you know? (laughs) Wow. Um, But what he was actually suggesting was maybe we have a place for you here. He didn't say that, unfortunately, so I had a few sleepless nights. But I did put together an idea for a broad-based program. I knew that Radio Australia was looking to change 
And so I put it to Jean-Gabriel. He said, this is a great idea. Let's do it. And so he signed me. And then he said, by the way, we're going to do it early morning. So I was back where I started again. <laughs> but I did this I did this program, which we originally called The Breakfast Club, because we tried to make it a flow, live flow, interesting program, which, where we could um, cut across live issues as they happen, do weather for all the listening regions and... Right. So yeah, who, well, who, right. who were you talking to when you were doing The Breakfast Club? Who was listening in? Well, at the beginning, our aim was to try and get people in Cambodia because that was our first FM licence was in Cambodia, um, in Phnom Penh. And also we had East Timor, so Dili was there. And a little later we came into Laos as well doing our own FM station. And, and how quickly did you get a sense that people were actually listening in? Well, certainly not on the first day because when we started, we were told everything was up, that we would be in uh, Cambodia. In fact, Jean-Gabriel came past and he did a big fist in the air like he just kicked an AFL goal and said, this is great, you're going broadcasting everywhere. And then he came back 10 minutes later and he said, oh, I'm so sorry, the FM transmitter in Phnom Penh's not working, but we'll be, it'll be right by Tuesday. Um, I went, okay, so we're still online. And then he came back on and said, no, online's actually not working. That'll be fixed by Tuesday. And then he came back 10 minutes later, almost to the minute, and said, <laughs> shortwave's gone down as well. So it was no one? No one. We list nobody was there. In fact, right. I remember the second program, we had just played a recording of the first program, and that was, <laughs> that was it. So, so nonetheless, once you did get up, on, up and running on shortwave FM and online and all that, how, how, what kind of audience? response did you get from listeners in Cambodia and uh, in Dili and uh, Laos? It became, over the next nine years, something of a family where we had so many people sending texts and emails. But at the very beginning in 2005, there was, I really felt like there was no audience. It was my co-presenter who was um, my producer for the show. She was sitting across me at the desk and we'd put out the, the text number we'd put out our email and we got nothing for two weeks nothing at all um there were signs that people were listening but again if you're broadcasting to countries where the technology had not quite reached or was not getting to people countries where the income is so much less not everyone's carrying around an iphone um many cars did not have radios um it was it was difficult to start with and when we got our first message after two weeks i remember adelaine my my co-presenter sticking a fist in the air going we got one you know and this went on it once it started it became an avalanche and it was only after i think 6 months or so that our marketing manager said we've got our first figures from cambodia just cambodia you've got quarter of a million weekly listeners <laughs> and they're not not english speaking people they're locals so we had these people listening to us um, as I was later to find, many people learnt English listening to me, so I'm really sorry <laughs> for what, what you thought was English. Um, but they, they did, and it, and it did build, and that was beautiful, especially um, in East Timor we had a lot of reactions. Certainly in Papua New Guinea where we had quite a few FM transmitters put in, we got a lot of listening. That's a huge audience, and when our show was eventually cut after the Tony Abbott cuts, we got a lot of reaction from listeners in PNG saying, please don't do it. And there was also one story I can tell you now that when the cuts did happen, not just to our show, but some of the uh, Tok Pissen service going into 
PNG, there were people in the Highlands who were saying things like, um, we're going to have a fundraiser to try to keep you on air. Oh, my God, how embarrassing that is. Oh. This is after government funding's been cut, is it? And they want to have a fundraising to, to keep you on the air. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about the origins of Radio Australia. I mentioned there it was founded in 1939 at the outbreak of World War II. Now, this is when there's war in Europe. This is before the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbour and then later on the region, but so it's before the war in the Pacific. I mentioned there that the reason why Robert Menzies wanted to start Radio Australia was to counteract propaganda from the Axis powers. What kind of things, terrible things, were the was Nazi Germany and then Soviet Russia saying about Australia? I still remember one from the Soviet Union that was quite extraordinary. They said Australia was not a good country because they stole lands off the Indigenous people, did not care for their Indigenous people. It was it was quite a strong statement to make about Indigenous rights. And this was the thing that was one of the heavy motivations for Robert Menzies to counter this propaganda. How dare they say that about <laughs> Australia? How dare they say we've done the wrong thing by our Indigenous people? You know, um, and, and of course, as we look back, we go, well, you know what? Hey, you know, I mean, you know, we're talking about Stalin here. I mean, Stalin was hardly the uh, the poster boy for human rights. No, no, and, and both he and Hitler had just invaded Poland and carved it up between <laughs> them. So, so he was hardly the kind of guy to speak out on such issues. But there was a truth to that. So, th- yes. so this really rattled Menzies, did it? It did. It uh, rattled Menzies. There was other things to come a little bit later, like Japan said. This was after, just after it started. Um, Japan said we have a fleet off the north of Australia ready to invade Australia. There was no fleet off the north of Australia, Japanese fleet. We do know in history that there was a uh, an admiral in the, or the equivalent of an admiral in the Japanese Navy who was desperate to invade Australia and he almost got his way. He probably would not have got very far. I don't think he realised that it's not like city after city. Once you invade Darwin and beat it... You've got a long got way a to long go walk to the next coast, don't you? Yeah, That's right. So, so the signal when it was being put out was broadcast on short the shortwave band. Now, yeah. this puts me in mind of when I was a little kid seeing like my grandparents' <laughs> radio, which, which, which was kind of a beautiful thing because on the dial you'd have like the various stations by their call signs, which was the lo- local radio stations. But then down below there'd be another band and they would have something like Tokyo or... Belgrade. Uh, Belgrade or, or Hong Kong yeah. and that sort of a thing. Tell me about shortwave and why it was used to pump out this signal around the world from Australia. Shortwave is an amazing technology to think for the time. It was just way ahead of its time. Radio Australia shortwave was actually beamed to the moon and so they could prove that communications could go through the vacuum of space and that was in 1948 but our shortwave was very very weak when it started like it was in a little shack in Lyndhurst in Victoria and this this shack it looks you can literally see string holding it together it's a shocking little shack it had one kilowatt or something of power but the joy of shortwave is it's the waves are very, very short. They're very thin, so it goes up, up and down very quickly. And you can bounce those waves off cloud. If you wanted to communicate with Darwin, you just point it towards Darwin and Darwin receives it. You can't do that with FM. It's, it only goes 50 k's or so and that's it. And if there's a building in between or a mountain in between, that's it. You're not going to get through it. But you can with shortwave. 
Well, here it is. This is what Prime Minister Menzies said in 1939 in the first broadcast of Radio Australia. I am speaking to you as Prime Minister of Australia. Our reason for establishing broadcasts of this kind may be quite simply stated. We have decided that over some of the propaganda stations to which you listen, so many strange things are said, not only about Australia, but about the whole of the British Empire, that the time has come to speak for ourselves. The time has come to speak for ourselves. Who was able to actually hear that broadcast, Phil? It was heard clearly in the States and in London using that one kilowatt. Now, one kilowatt <laughs> is a sort of thing. Right. Yeah, out of a shack held together with string. And if you touched, you touched the power with your finger, you probably wouldn't even feel it. One kilowatt's nothing. But it has the ability to go long distances. And, in fact, they could turn it around and face Antarctica, and it would bounce off the clouds, go over Antarctica, back up the other side of the world, and could go into Eastern Europe. <laughs> that it sounds was miraculous. That sounds miraculous even here in the 2020s. That sounds kind of wonderful to be able yeah. to do that with that technology. Did Menzies intend this service to be a kind of tool for soft propaganda or kind of an anti-propaganda service? Was it going to combat wartime propaganda or offer sort of impartial news, reliable news? Oh, did it? This is one of the things that I, I spend a lot of time talking about. What is propaganda? What is anti-propaganda? What were we here to do? Well, look, certainly one of the purposes of it was to provide a kind of a fillip for Australians living overseas, so that if you were in Singapore, and we knew Singapore was under threat, we knew parts of Southeast Asia were under threat, there were a lot of Australians in areas, including Europe, of course, and in, uh, in Africa as well. And so he wanted to speak to them to let them know that things are OK, don't believe this propaganda. So in that way, it's an anti-propaganda thing. But there was also... I noticed as I as I went on that as government got its hands on our international broadcasting, there were suggestions that we should be or that Radio Australia should be an arm of the government, uh, sort of a voice of America, which has been known through its history not to be impartial but rather express the view of whoever is the president of the time. So there was that sort of push and pull between putting out um, what was true but also sins of omission as well, leaving out certain things, like when Darwin was bombed. Many people didn't know that Australian servicemen did looting. Not all, obviously. Yeah, but... And there was panic too uh, amongst the servicemen too. There was panic and looting, yes. But Radio Australia did not broadcast that. It was war, and you want to be careful about what you say to the world either, but they didn't broadcast the whole truth at any point. Nonetheless, do we know if Japanese people were listening in and finding out the truth? Because they were certainly not getting any truthful reports about the way once the war in the Pacific began. Do we know if they were listening in in wartime? The beauty of shortwave was it wasn't it just go to one area. It goes in a V. So if it started at Lyndhurst and later with this huge Star Trek type array, it looked like Deep Space Nine at Shepparton, it goes in a V from there Outward. So it was covering all of Japan. So anybody in Japan who wanted to listen to Radio Australia, especially after the opening of Shepparton, which was uh, some of the most powerful transmitters in the world, they could. They absolutely could. 
and there were some there were some people who said after the war that they were listening at the time don't remember what their reaction was necessarily but they couldn't help but get it if they switched their dial to Radio Australia. So once the war came to an end in 1945, I don't doubt for a moment, Phil, that someone from Treasury came rushing up to the relevant minister or the Treasurer and said, well, we can shut this down now. We don't need to pay for it anymore. How did it survive? Because there must have been pressure to dismantle it after after the war. Yeah. It, the, the, good, the beauty of Radio Australia then and probably now is it's never cost a lot of money. But what happened after the war was... Ben Chifley was the Prime Minister and his two heirs or the two people who saw themselves as um, future Prime Ministers and that's Bert Evatt and he was Foreign Minister and there was Arthur Corwell who was the Minister for Immigration. They both rather than see this thing shut down, saw that they had great opportunities to use this international service for their own means. And certainly Cornwall, who had put together an idea for a post-war immigration scheme, he wanted to use it to beam virtually ads into Eastern Europe so that people who were thinking about moving or people wanting to get out of Europe or who wanted to be refugees or were just wanting to migrate to a happier place to come to Australia. So he used it for that. Bert Ebert wanted it to be a organ of the Foreign Affairs Department. It wasn't a Foreign Affairs Department then, of course. It was External Affairs, but he wanted to use it. And so there was grappling, political grappling between these two. They were fighting each other off. And, and on a deeper level, of course, they both saw it as whoever wins this will be the natural successor to Chifley because they've just had a big fight over their mortal enemies. So there was a lot of um, political infighting and that kept Radio Australia alive because they had to find a purpose. It was no longer a thing about anti-propaganda. They saw this thing as being useful in other areas like the post-war immigration scheme. After Menzies became Prime Minister again in 1949, there was again pressure to dismantle the service. Tell me the story of how the service was saved from <laughs> yes. from a bit of outside agency there, please, Phil. Well, look, just based on what I just said, that we had uh, we had uh, Arthur Corwell and Bert Ebert fighting for control of Radio Australia. As these years went on, Menzies, who was watching from the sidelines as opposition leader, he was he was saying, obviously, this Radio Australia thing that used to be called Australia Calling. Um, My baby has become a Labour Party tool. I'm not going to have that. So he was determined when he came to power to shut it down. And in fact, his external affairs minister, who was Sir Percy Spender, he had listened once to Radio Australia when he was overseas. He didn't like what he heard. And so he wrote a letter of complaint. And you know what? It was a music show. He didn't like the music show. (laughs) So he was going to shut down a whole service. Of course, you know, he was no no great fan of, I don't know, who was on at the time, Frank Sinatra or whatever. By by these whims do great Australian institutions live and die. (laughs) Right. Don't much care for that. Right. I know. Crazy, isn't it? Um, And so in this case, we had... Um, the Liberals getting back into power going, okay, let's let's ditch it. And they were just about to ditch it and they got a call from MI5. I mean, now the external um, service, uh, secret service in Britain is MI6, but at that time MI5 and uh, MI5 contacted and said, look, 
your transmitters are so strong, they are the only way or the best way of getting into Eastern Europe. So what, we better need than to the BBC, like better than the BBC signal that was getting across the Iron Curtain. Ah, but that's interesting. You see, this is the joy of shortwave that you come from where you come from and how you come from it. It is such a difference. Remember, I said at the beginning that we had a one kilowatt array which got into London, we now had, what, I don't know, a few hundred times that power, and it was getting in really well, better than the BBC. It just happened to be one of those anomalies. And so they they did not want, in these early days of the Cold War, they did not want to have this communication device shut down. So they said it to Menzies, and he was enough of a Britophile to go, oh, well, if MI5 says we need to keep it, we need to keep it. And so he kept it. End <laughs> so, of story. Because we were better at getting at Prague and Warsaw than the BBC. That's amazing. <laughs> that's just yes. fantastic. So, so by the time we get into the 1960s, it seems that's a real heyday for Radio Australia. It's a time when they're getting giant audiences. What's your estimation of the, ex- the reach... I mean, we can't get exact figures on this, but how wide was the audience? How widely spread was the audience for Radio Australia in these days on the shortwave band in the nineteen sixties? Well, the joy of shortwave is again is the fact you just set and forget, and you go out in this triangle from the transmitter outwards. So. In effect, you could reach just about everybody in that region. So if we did Asia, we've got billions, you know. And I used to say, I used to occasionally um, do some analysis for local radio in Melbourne and uh, John Fain, who was the morning presenter at the time, used to say, I have an audience of a few hundred thousand people. My next guest has a potential reach of billions. And he was true. And people could. Listen, that way we don't know, unlike, say, doing online, we don't know exactly how many people listened, but the potential reach was billions right from 1944-45 onwards. And we must have been doing something right at Radio Australia because from surveys that happened 1950-54-55 international shortwave listeners clubs, which would be many people, I think, of Australian background or English background, um, they they voted Radio Australia either first or second and they really celebrated, Radio Australia really celebrated um, its success when it came second in a survey in 1950, I think it was. But number one on the survey was um, Congo Broadcasting and the BBC didn't feature at all in the top ten. So I think it's a bit dubious (laughs) myself. Bit of a a dodgy survey, that went bad. But we'll take it. We'll take it. We'll take that as well. (laughs) Then there's Indonesia in the post-war era, Phil. There's the 60s under Sukarno, the year of living dangerously, all that violence, then the violence that came with his overthrow. Then there's the Suharto regime's invasion of East Timor. In 1975, what role did Radio Australia play in reporting these events to Indonesians and the wider world? And what did the regime in Jakarta think of that? The Indonesian government was kind of in two minds about it. It it really liked it when things were positive, didn't like it so much when stories were being put that it wasn't very happy about. But... And and I'll use the example of a man called Hidayat Jayamahaja, who was the head of the Indonesian service around the time that I was there. And Hidayat was actually, you talked about the year of living dangerously, the film that came out with Mel Gibson, um, the person who played 
his assistant, Linda Hunt, played his assistant. Um, that was actually, the assistant was based on Hidayat. And Hidayat was a young man at the time and he really wanted to be in broadcasting and and he loved Radio Australia and eventually he, he started doing stringing for Radio Australia. And he saw the value of something like this as a young Indonesian. And Sahato wasn't so much of a fan at various times. Sakano at times was. He saw he saw some value in this. It sort of brought international broadcasting to his country and he wasn't really against it until there was criticism of some of the things that were happening. But then when an Australian diplomat would go over he would go, oh, I listen to Radio Australia. Or when an Australian broadcaster from Radio Australia would be seated there, he'd go, oh, hello, Mr Radio Australia. I listen to you all the time. Whether he actually really liked the service or not, I don't know. I suspect he probably didn't. No one likes to have the truth um, told to them, especially when you're something of a dictator. So, no, it was um, really almost a schizoid attitude towards it. You're saying uh, as time went by, though, it became more antagonistic. The Indonesian government became more antagonistic towards Australia, uh, Radio Australia. In 76, Malcolm Fraser was pushed by President Suharto to censor it. And they even tried to block it from Indonesian ears at one point. Yeah, and that's right. And when you're broadcasting the truth, not everyone wants to hear the whole truth. And, um, and we, we did have that situation. Um, I think when we had East that East Timor independence struggle, similar things happened as well when um, we had, as we know, many of the journalists, including journalists from uh, Radio Australia, who were hunkered down in fear of their lives because of Indonesian soldiers and the militia that were um, attacking the place where they were caught. And being a part of Radio Australia was certainly not going to be a, a thing that would be very good for them. You know, it's not going to be a, a visa for them to be able to escape with their lives. But luckily, people like Jemima Garrett did. broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Radio Australia, I have to say, just reading your book, it struck me that it would have offered natural cover for Australian spies, spies from the Australian intelligence services. Did you find any hint of that? You know what, when I, I did about 60 interviews for this book, a lot of them with former staffers, um, you know, a lot of politicians, but I remember one of the first interviews, the person said to me at the end of our discussion, she said, do you know that the place was run by spooks? <laughs> um, so, uh, sorry, um, can, can we start this interview again? What do you mean run by spooks? And he said, oh, I can't stay now, I've got to go. And he left and I went, run by spooks? And then a few interviews later, somebody said the same thing. Spooks, you know, spooks, spies run the place and I, or ran the place. And I was so surprised. What it works out, so I did some research and what it was was that so we had many um, language groups and each language group was run quite often by a white 
man. And quite often, these white men, I'm talking back in the day, these white men had worked for external affairs or had worked for ASIO. At one stage, there was a boss whose brother was had been the head of ASIO. So there was a lot of things turned into this whole big, there were spies everywhere, you know, but they weren't saying that it was used as a, as a spy network. It wasn't. But, well, as far as I know, anyway, from the research, it was nothing to suggest that. But the fact that people had worked in espionage or had been close to that or had worked in the foreign service, that's what led to people to say the place has been run by spooks. Certainly not that I saw did this ever go to anything that um, was broadcast on air, but, you know, who knows. A recurrent theme in your book seems to be that when a new government is elected in Australia... They come into power and someone from Treasury again or someone from the Department of Finance or the Department of Why We Can't Have Nice Things comes up to the relevant minister and says, oh, mate, we're spending all this money on this thing, you know. And Australians don't. There's no audience for it in in Australia. So, uh, you know, you're looking for budget savings. That seems like a really obvious thing to do. And it seems to happen again and again. And it often takes a while for a politician to get into office, to go out into the wider world, for them to realise the impact that Radio Australia has on a wider audience. And not even overseas. I mean, we if we're talking the 50s and 60s, Radio Australia was the only way for many people in Northern Australia to get ABC Broadcasting. They didn't have necessarily a widely transmitting local radio station. Um, so people who are in the far west could hear ABC by listening to Radio Australia on shortwave. So it people in that really foreign country, there's the Kimberley and uh, Arnhem Land can actually <laughs> pick up Radio Australia as, uh, as their local broadcaster. There. They certainly yeah. could. It was really important. And I think it was in the 60s that we had our first transmitter in Darwin, the Cox Peninsula. Um, transmitter, which was just across the sea from Darwin, and so we were we had a, a network of transmitters. There was one that was also on the border with Western Australia, just inside Western Australia. So it was broadcasting in that area as well, from that area as well as elsewhere. So in the seventies and the sixties, there was a lot of importance on the broadcasting of Radio Australia inside as well as outside. But outside, absolutely, it was so important to continue that conversation. It was seen as being important to continue that conversation. But I remember that the attempts to to kill it, and again, it wasn't the most expensive broadcaster in the world. When they built the Shepparton transmitter, you would think, if we're talking logically about any kind of transmission, why build a transmitter in Victoria. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Do we, you know why? I'll tell you why. It's because the ABC was such hard asses that what they were doing, the electricity was cheaper. And <laughs> shortwave... Right uses a lot of electricity, and they just didn't want to pay the bill. So they didn't do it in Darwin. Then they did it in Victoria, and it just worked out that they were so powerful, these transmitters, that they could still go all over the world. So it worked out okay. There was a moment in 1996 after the Howard government were elected where it really looked like that was the end for Radio Australia. The ABC as a whole suffered some savage cuts. There was a belief amongst the government the ABC was hopelessly biased against it. Uh, Mm. And Radio Australia was really put on the chopping block after the Mansfield inquiry recommended it be cut away. Why didn't it die then, Phil? 
Well, it was saved. I just, just before I do tell you how it was saved, it was interesting that the Mansfield inquiry, Bob Mansfield, took a lot of statements from people. And one person said to me that he asked the, he asked the question that, you know, what do you think is more important, rural radio services or Radio Australia? He asked someone from a rural Australia, which would you think is more important, you getting Radio Australia or overseas people getting Radio Australia? That was the way it was put to me. Whether he actually asked the question in that way, I don't know. But, of course, the person in rural Australia who was a fan of Radio Australia said... Um, Local radio, I think, is more important. Yeah, okay, thank you very any, much. But there was never any discussion about cutting rural local radio at all at the time, as I recall. So it wasn't an either-or proposition, was it? Well, kind of was in a way because he was also looking at where money should would be most effective. So if Mansfield came back and said, keep Radio Australia but cut rural services, that might have had a bit of a difference. But Mansfield was sponsored by the government and the government chose somebody who they thought was of a mind with them. And so we had, and this is the Howard government, this is um, Richard Alston, who was the communications minister at the time, and they were ready to cut it. It was ready to be killed. And there were people in Radio Australia who told me, you know, I was in tears. I'd just moved to be near Radio Australia at the time. It was in East Burwood in Melbourne, which is a long way out of town. People had moved home to be near this new centre where nothing else was. All the ABC was supposed to go there. They didn't. It was just Radio Australia stuck out here at East Burwood. Um, So people were resigned to the fact they were going to lose their job. The thing will be shut down. Enter an assistant for the Foreign Minister, Alexander Downer. In fact, a lot of people have taken credit for this, getting into Alexander Downer's ear. Um, There were people in his office, there were people in his family, there were journalists in the ABC. One particular journalist said, I mentioned to Alexander Downer, you know, they're going to cut Radio Australia, that means you will not be able to broadcast to the Pacific anymore. And he, and I interviewed Alexander Downer for the book, He was very willing to talk about Radio Australia. In fact, of all the people I interviewed, the one who I found most fun to talk to was Alexander Downer, who still claimed that they should build a statue to me in the foyer of Radio Australia because (laughs) I saved it. I saved it. And at the end of the interview, he said, oh, do let me know when it's being launched. And I said, what? The book or the statue? Oh, and he thought that was very funny as well. You know, that's his thing. Um, But he did save it. He went in and battled against Howard, battled against Alston, pulled the ministry on his side and saved a lot of Radio Australia. We didn't save any of it. It's politics. You've got to give a little. And so some of it shut down. Some services were cut but he did manage to save the body of it. Now, I'm astonished um, to read in your book, Phil, that all these international figures came to Radio Australia's defence at the time. You say that the Papua New Guinea Prime Minister, Julius Chan, offered to give a million dollars to keep Radio Australia on the air. The chair of the US Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, supported the existence of it because he used to listen to Radio Australia. Alan Greenspan was a listener to Radio Australia. (laughs) You say there was the King of Cambodia and the Cambodian Foreign Minister, Jose Ramos Horto, now the President again of East Timor, Timor-Leste, also lamented the threat to Radio Australia from this report and it was saved in the end. This does tell you something about how useful it was seen to be in the region. 
And it was also, I think, a measure of the people who worked at Radio Australia because they started a campaign to save it. And at one point, what they did, there was a, a board meeting in the South Bank building. Um, this was a little later. This was, Yeah, this was 97. And they had actually got all these letters from all over the world and they knew where the board members would be walking, up a set of stairs into the board meeting, on the, on the boardroom, on the second floor, and they just littered the stairs with letters from people saying, please don't kill Radio Australia. So they had to walk over this correspondence to go into the board meeting. So these people who worked at Radio Australia had all these contacts across the world. They contacted them and said, you know, we've interviewed Alan Greenspan, they'd get him on various programs at various times, and said, you know, they're thinking of cutting it, what do you think? So a little bit of it was getting these people to actually respond, but the fact is they did respond and they did put in protests or sent letters of support to the service. So, you know, it wasn't just, oh, I've heard about this, I'm going to do it. It was prompted, but they still did it, which I, I think is extraordinary. I recall, though, at the time, the Darwin transmitters, the Howard government sold the Darwin, Darwin transmitters of Radio Australia to a private Christian broadcaster. Did that mean that people went from in the region went from hearing the voice of Australia to tuning in to hear onward Christian soldiers or something like that? <laughs> Seriously, on the same wave, wavelength? Is that what happened? That was, yeah, it, it was. It absolutely was. And, in fact, that happened on the night of Hong Kong's handover, handback. And we had people in Hong Kong. We had Sen Lam, who was um, one of our most respected journalists. He was over there. It was a huge night. But then the switch happened and we didn't broadcast the handover on Radio Australia because... What, halfway through the ceremony, the, the plug was before pulled? Before the ceremony before started. Before the ceremony nothing, started, the yeah, plug right. was pulled on the Hong Kong handover. But it was one of those... those exquisite kind of mess-ups that, um, you know, doesn't happen. And I think there's not a lot of people, there are not a lot of people in the ABC or who were involved at the time who were very happy about that. I interviewed David Hill, who was the at one stage the chairman and the general manager of the ABC, and he, when he talks about things that happened, he admits very few mess-ups on his behalf, I've got to say, but that's one that, um, that he says, oh, that could have been done better. Former Managing Director Mark Scott once made the point that Radio Australia was exerting Australian soft power into the region. What do you think of that phrase? Joseph Nye invented that phrase. but And I remember I was on air at the time. And when you... You would have gone through this yourself, Richard, I think. When you're broadcasting, you do ask yourself, what is the point? Why am I doing it? Not just to build an audience, that's pretty vacuous, but is it... Like, are we serving a real purpose here in, in our broadcasting? And it was one of those things that when Mark Scott first referenced Nye's statement, we went, soft power, that's an interesting one. Does this mean that we are actually a voice of the government? But no, it wasn't. Soft power does not mention that. It talks, it's not referencing that. It's about showing people the sort of people we are, that um, we Showcasing are... Showcasing Australians at their best or at and the, worst, yeah. I wonder, or, though. It's kind of a the sort of people idea, we isn't are. it? The sort of yeah. people we are, best and worst yeah. of us. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we make mistakes and, you know, we, we're on air, especially when you're doing a live flow show. My show went from seven in the morning till midday. So it's five hours. But in the middle, we had Sen Lam's program or we had early AM. So we had little 
breakups in it. But, um, you know, in, in five hours of broadcasting, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to say things that may not be exactly what you would have intended to say. So they would hear it good and bad. So it wasn't a sanitised program. If it was going to be sanitised, it just all be recorded and then listened to and decided, you know, we'll put that bit to air. So, so it was warts and all broadcasting of what an Australian is and I think it took a while to get to that. I actually, at one point, towards the end of my time, I was in the cafe and the head of international at the time was ordering a coffee and she was next to me and I said, and she said, how's it going? And I said, oh, keeping the old soft broadcast, the soft diplomacy going. And she looked at me. The only time I ever saw any negative in her eyes and she said, we are not doing soft diplomacy. <laughs> so, I thought, um, okay, what? am I doing then? <laughs> no, if I'm not doing that. But obviously her view was different to what Mark Scott was talking about. Let's just broadcast. Let's be a good radio, a good radio station broadcasting. You know, we were doing some good things. You know, we were broadcasting um, health information, physical and mental health segments we had on, broadcasting people's own leaders back to themselves or analysis of their country back to themselves. You know, there was a lot of stuff we were doing that it's more than just saying this is what an Australian sounds like. It was, um, you know, there was a lot of great news stuff and current affairs stuff going out. Well, in the, so in, the I, long I run, in the long run, if you are reporting as accurately and as honourably as you can on what's going on in the world and in Australia particularly, whether it makes Australia look good or look bad, in the long run, you do look good. Australia does look good because we would have been seen, I would imagine, as being honourable reporters of the truth and reliable reporters. Do you think there's some truth to that? There could be. I think it all depends on really what their government says. I mean, with the Fiji coup in 2007, after the Bainimarama coup, when we were broadcasting a lot of criticism of that coup, it was a military coup, media was being targeted, was being, they had censors in newsrooms, certain stories couldn't go out. And there were we on Radio Australia, on FM, going into every house, telling people exactly what was going on and having critics of the government, even within Fiji, telling things to people that were completely contradictory to the usurping government. So they did shut us down. We were shut down at gunpoint. Um, our transmitters were up in the highlands and they couldn't get to it and no-one knew where our transmitters were. All they knew was this FM signal of Radio Australia was going across Fiji and, and I must say, philosophically, I've got, I'm in two minds about that. It's Fiji. It's a sovereign nation. Even though it was a coup, do we as a foreigner have the right to broadcast against the wishes of the government, whether it's a rightful government or not? But the, at, at gunpoint, our technician was found. He was taken up to the mountains and the, and the shortwave transmitter was, oh, the, the FM transmitter was shut down. But it does bring in, you know, that whole issue about whether it is the right thing to do or not. And the, when you had the Fiji government saying, no, what they're broadcasting is not right to their people, I don't know if that's necessarily going to um, to give a really good signal about what Australia's broadcasting. If a government says it enough, says that our broadcasting is wrong and unfair, and then people might tend to believe that as well. So it's not always going to be a, a good thing. What happened to Radio Australia after the election of the Abbott government in 2013? 
basically a lot of shows went um, there was a period just before that when we had a, a leader Mike McCluskey who was I've got to say the best boss I've ever had he was the one who turned Radio Australia into a seven stream network and what that means is the Pacific had one stream so we broadcasted to Tonga, Samoa, Nui, Vanuatu, Fiji on one stream but we had a different station for Indonesia where they would have my breakfast show in English and then the Indonesian service would do a number of shows after that and then another one to Cambodia my show for breakfast in English but then they would have Cambodia so it was and it was a 24-hour station it was quite extraordinary and then from that high, things started to come down again. Funding was getting a bit tight, and so some shows were cut. We were no longer 24 hours. And when Tony Abbott got in office, he cut the ABC. And this is where I had the one interesting discussion with Alexander Downer, because I said, Tony Abbott cut Radio Australia. And he went, no, he didn't. I said, he did. I mean, you know, there was big cutting. No, he didn't. The Liberal Party cut the ABC. The ABC made the decision to cut Radio Australia. I said, oh, come on, though, you know, I'm trying to be as nice as I can. I said, you're going to cut it. The part of, radio, part of the ABC that's bound to go is the one that people are not going to arc up about, you know, the, the one that is not regional Radio Australia or um, Radio National or local radio or the Jays. It's going to be the one that people don't know about. They're going to get less protests. So... Yeah, so it's it's going to go. And he, said, he maintained, he said, no, no, it was a decision of the ABC to cut Radio Australia. But, of course, it was always going to go. You're going to do this sort of funding cut, it had to go. And what did that mean and, for programs in the Asia-Pacific region? No, well, it meant for Asia, eventually, it meant that um, the Asian streams were shut down. And we now broadcast to the Pacific including PNG and East Timor. There is um, going to be changes coming to that, you know, of hopefully more money. But at the time, it was pretty bad. My show, I remember my program at that stage had seven people on it. It was a very big show. So it wasn't the greatest moment in my, in my time to have that happening. But when they did cut us, they sat us down and said, look, your show is going to have to go. In fact, we're cutting all of our own Indigenous as such programming. So um, current affairs stayed, but much programming was cut down in 2014, and so we were all made redundant. Shortwave was cut off in 2017. Does Radio Australia even need a radio signal anymore? I mean, is it time or has it long been time for it to become a completely online service? Oh, you know, when we started, we looked at what would broadcasting be like in the future? What's going to happen with it in 2005? We're talking 18 years ago. And you try to think, how are people going to be listening? But the truth was then and the truth is now that FM is really good because people can listen to it in their cars. Digital broadcasting, sure, but who really does that? I never have. And, you know, if I want to listen to a radio show, I'll just put it on. I remember I was in PNG in 2012 and... I was listening to Radio Australia and I heard a promo I had recorded and it sounded like I was talking to myself from the back seat, you know, of this car. It was wonderful to hear the quality of FM. So FM 
is really important for that. And I, d- I wouldn't have thought that 18 years later we'd be listening on FM still, but we do. And people do in the region. They've got the radios in their homes. They've got um, radios in their cars. And ironically enough, you can listen to, of course, and people have been listening to their radio stations through online on their phones too. So it's something that I think is still really important. You do need to keep doing it. You do keep needing an FM presence. So after so many of Radio Australia's services had to be shut down, in, in the Pacific particularly, what was it that got <laughs> the federal government suddenly very quickly interested in broadcasting into the Pacific once again? <laughs> oh, you could, could it love be the a Chinese. word beginning with China? <laughs> yeah, you've got to love the Chinese, don't mm. you? This, was, um, this is Scott Morrison made a couple of policy announcements the government had been more aware of what China was doing in the region, and that is expanding, trying to get more influence with the different countries in the region. And as they were expanding, Scott Morrison realised that as well. He started his Pacific pivot. He gave a speech in the Pacific, which he used He used a couple of local words in his speech, and people were very impressed. And then um, there were some things that the government did to try and counter the influence of China. So China's going around in like the Solomons building sporting facilities and schools and and the relations with the Pacific had taken a bit of a nosedive at that point. So this was, again, I suppose, us wanting to project, a, seeing a necessity to project our voice in, into the region. Well, it was certainly the politicians, everyone I spoke to, Penny Wong included, said, we've got to have our voice there. We've got to be able to speak to people in this region. If we have less of a voice there, then we're going to be this country off to the left that no one's actually going to have any... It's not going to be relevant to us at all. So what we saw before the last election was a promise by the coalition to increase funding to the ABC and to Radio Australia. And since that, again, more. So it looks like things are going to be... I hope, anyway. Okay. So much of this story to me, uh, Phil, seems to be like it's a classic story that happens to countries that are uh, comparatively rich like Australia but are nonetheless middle powers. There's always this tension between the little Australia instinct to tend our garden, to just look after ourselves and not be too fussed about the wider world and that other instinct that has always been in Australia too for a bigger, more engaged Australia that might have, that might think it has something to offer the wider world. What do you think about all that? Mm, yeah, I think at the moment it's probably more pragmatism that we're watching China do what it's done and move into our region. A lot of our decisions are being based on that. We don't do it necessarily because we want to be seen as magnanimous or a great people, but because we don't really have a great deal of choice if we're going to have a place in our region. I suppose it's a general issue too, isn't it, about how we see ourselves? as a people, yeah. what we think of the society we live in, whether we think we've got a good story to tell or a bad story to tell, how Australia brings that voice to the world. And when you consider that Australia doesn't just have one voice and Australians do mm. not have one voice and how things... Were, I mean, yeah, we might have been a great broadcaster in the 50s and in the 60s, Radio Australia had more women broadcasters than just about anyone else. We had Maggie Wood, Margaret Wood, Maggie Woodbeck. We had um, Jocelyn Terry and Desley Blanche. You know, we had we had so many women broadcasters. Australia was moving ahead, and I think Radio Australia was giving an indication that Australia was quite a progressive country, and it was certainly progressive in Radio Australia. I don't know how progressive it was outside of Radio Australia, but Australia is not just one country. I mean, these were back in the days 
days when, you know, my forebears were still being looked on as the other because they were Greek and women were being seen as outside their place if they were outside of the home. So where does Australia sit and what voice do we have? I think we've got plenty of voices in Australia. And um, the good thing, I think, about Radio Australia was having so many language groups. And it was a big education to me coming to Radio Australia and sitting next to people from, you know, Cambodia and China and from Vietnam and Indonesia. I learned so much from these people that I didn't spend a lot of time with when I was a kid. It's been great speaking with you, Phil. What a fascinating story about this massively influential institution in Australia that Australians know almost nothing about because it's not really been directed at Australians living in Australia. It's been completely fascinating. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you, Richard. Good to speak to you. Phil Kafkaludis is the author of Australia Calling, the ABC Radio Australia story. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.